What we need is more common sense. More common sense. You've got to use plain old common sense. Breaking down the world's nonsense. About how American common sense will see us through. With the common sense of Houston. I'm just pro-common sense. For Houston, from Houston. Where are you talking about common sense? This is the Jimmy Barrett Show. Brought to you by Viewin.com. Now, here's Jimmy Barrett. Evidently, there are racist colors. Yeah, we're going to tackle that one to start the day today. How you doing? 305 here on AM 950 KPRC. This story is out of my old stopping grounds, Richmond, Virginia, where there is a Republican. Of course, this would not be an issue if it were a Democrat, but it's not. It's a Republican, and he is running for governor. He's trying to get the gubernatorial nomination to run as the Republican candidate for governor. Seems to me they do, uh, I want to think, see, it's amazing how Texified I've become. I'm, I'm forgetting all the Virginia rules. Uh, it seems to me that the governor's race is held in the off years, not in the presidential years. It's held in the midterm years. Um, so anyway, that means that there'll be election next November, which is why they're vying right now to get the nomination. Anyway, the candidate's name is Glenn Youngkin. I have no idea who Glenn Youngkin is. I've never heard of Glenn Youngkin. I, I cannot vouch for him as a human being or as a person, other than the statement he made in a podcast interview about unity doesn't seem to have any issues with it as far as I can tell. So what did he say? He said, so that all Virginians, black Virginians, brown Virginians, white Virginians, yellow Virginians can all achieve their aspirations and their ambitions. And this is what America is about. This is what Virginia should be about. Okay, can we figure out what the problem is? The color problem. It's not black. It's not brown. It's not white. Evidently, that leaves one word, and that one word would be yellow. Asian Americans have been referred to in the past as yellow. I don't think that their skin is particularly yellow. Just like I don't think Sicilian skin is particularly olive. But that's how it's described. Wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't use olive. This candidate was accused of being a racist. What he said was racist. And then they proceeded to try to highlight the way the term has been misused in the past. These are Democrats, of course. Who, who say, all the other colors are fine, yellow is racist. Until it turns out that Virginia Democrats have used that term in the past. They don't think it's racist when they use the term. In fact, they used it at their own Democratic National Convention. So, why is it that... We continue to allow the Democrats to paint us into a corner. If you are white, and he is white, by the way, and you are middle-aged, and he is middle-aged, by the way, then anything that comes out of your mouth can be deemed by a liberal to be racist, if that's what they choose it to be. If yellow is racist, then black is racist, and white is racist, and so is brown. 
if we're going to describe people based on color in an effort to be inclusive, then we have to use, unless, of course, the Asian community can get together and all agree on a different color. Pick a color. Any color. Don't take pink, though, because somebody might confuse that as being gender-specific. Pink has been generally considered to be a girl color. And don't say girl because we know the problems behind that. And, and, and don't pick blue because traditionally blue has been a boy color. But again, don't say that because the boy might be a girl or identify as something else. The rules have gotten to be rather ridiculous. Or we could just, let's not refer to color at all. That, that, can I say the word person? That person over there, not that man, not that woman, not that girl, not that boy, that person. Boy, we, get, we can be really personal now, can't we? We can't, even, we can't even describe somebody that we're talking about. That's how sensitive things have gotten. And by the way, did you hear the story there during Fox News? about passports foreign countries evidently are going to be able to deal with whether or not they're dealing with a person of an un unknown gender identity the US they of course they can't do it yet because they don't have the technology surprise surprise but the US is going to add a third gender option on passports Starting immediately, we are told, an applicant for a U.S. passport can simply check M or F as their gender without needing to provide medical certification if that gender doesn't match their other documents. So if you are a female and you prefer to live as a man or a man that prefers to live as a female, you just put down what gender you identify with, not what gender you actually are. Now, I'm imagining to myself... So potentially embarrassing pat-downs in airport security in foreign countries that might not be quite as woke as we seem to be becoming, who have somebody in front of them that for all intents and purposes seems to be a woman. But hang on a second. There looks like there's something going on here that you wouldn't find on most women. Or the opposite. It could happen. So do they make an assumption that that individual is just identifying or do they do they have to do more of an investigation to do, make sure that there's not some guy using a woman's passport or some woman using a guy's passport in an attempt to elude authorities or, or because they don't qualify for a passport on their own? I don't know. See, the more we try to be so inclusive, we just we just make things very confusing. It is uh, it's a confusing world we live in and getting more and more confusing all the time. All right, quick little break. Back with more in a moment. Jimmy Barrett Show on a Thursday here on AM 950 KPRC. Three nineteen is the time here on AM 950 KPRC. I don't normally play a lot of audio featuring Nancy Pelosi for, for very obvious reasons and certainly not one this long, but I want you to hear this one. I think it's important to share it with you because there is going to be a January the 6th commission to investigate the quote-unquote riot 
in Washington, D.C., or the assault on the Capitol, however, however it is the liberals want to portray it today. And it's not even that there's a commission. It's who's going to be on the commission. She introduced the members of the commission earlier today, so bear with us. I know it's grating to listen to a minute and a half of Nancy Pelosi, but she introduces everybody on board, and there's a few names there I think you're going to recognize. Here she is. You ready? Nancy Pelosi. As you can see uh, this morning, uh, our chairman will be Benny Thompson. Uh, he's chair of the Homeland Security Committee, and he negotiated the bipartisan commission, and we thank him for his leadership. Chairs of Lofgren House Administration Committee, which is having key hearings as Committee of Jurisdiction for the Safety uh, of the Capitol. Uh, the intelligence being very important to this chair, uh, Adam Schiff of the Intelligence <coughs> Committee. Uh, Pete Aguilar, House Appropriations Committee. That is a committee of jurisdiction uh, for this, as well as being a member of the House Administration Committee. Um, I'm saying this in, in uh, seniority order. Congresswoman Liz Cheney uh, of the Armed Services Committee has patriotically agreed to serve on the committee. She has a family matter she's dealing with, may join us, uh, depending on how long this takes. But we're very honored and proud uh, that she has agreed to serve on the committee. Oh, Representative Stephanie Murphy of Armed Services Committee Representative Jamie Raskin, a constitutional scholar, as you all know, Oversight Committee. That is a committee, a major committee of jurisdiction, uh, the, the Committee on Oversight, also on the Judiciary Committee, which has a, a, a standing on all of this. And then and we're very proud that Elaine Loria, a Navy veteran, captain of the ship, uh, maybe there's a more technical and better, what is it, what was the title? Retired commander. Oh, my gosh. She sounded more and more like Joe Biden, isn't she? She's, she sounded more and more like Joe Biden. <laughs> Struggling. Did you notice two of the big names on that list that, that should have st stuck out to you if you follow politics at all? Adam Schiff. You remember Adam Schiff? Remember what a little weasel he is in doing everything, in the whole Russia investigation? Guess what? That's why he's there, so he can be a weasel all over again. So we know what to expect from him. I don't know that much about the other people. I'm going to assume that there's not going to be a lot of sympathetic individuals on board the commission. That's what I mean. The fix is in on this. Clearly, the fix is in. I hope, don't know what they... Well, I think I do know what they hope to... Well, hang on. Let me comment on one the other other name that should have stood out to you. Because that's the lone Republican I'm aware of that's on this committee. And that would be one Liz Cheney. She is one of only... In addition to the fact that she hated Trump. Hated Trump. In addition to that... She was one of only two members of the Republican Party to vote in favor of this January 6th commission. So you see why 
You see why she's on the committee, right? Oh, the fix is in. The fix is completely in. There's no question how this is going to go. There's, you might as well just go ahead and fast forward to the end. The point, the point I'm assuming is, is to be able to come up with something that they can charge Donald Trump for, President Trump. They are deathly afraid that he is going to run again. And they're even more afraid that he could win again. Personally, I don't know that he's going to run again. But that's the idea. That's why the state of New York continues to go after his businesses. That is why this committee is being formed. The Trump obsession continues. And they will not be satisfied until he's locked away in prison or has been rendered powerless. Neither of which I think they're going to be successful at. And, of course, they keep on going on with the narrative. All the people who lost their lives on January the 6th will listen. They keep bringing up the police officer, although at least the more responsible media outlets are forced to remind everybody, yeah, we lost a couple of Capitol Police officers, but one of them died by suicide. Suicide. Who knows why they committed suicide? You're saying that it's January the 6th? That's why they committed suicide? I I don't know what that's based on. And the other police officer who died hours after engaging with rioters, who they begrudgingly admit, the medical examiner, said he died of natural causes. <laughs> natural causes are, is not caused by a riot. So you see what we're dealing with here, right? This is one of those things that is going to really make me angry because I'm going to be forced to keep an eye on it. I'm going to be forced to report on it because it's what I do. And I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to have to listen to a lot of crap. A whole lot of crap. I'm going to try to bring as little crap to the radio as I can. Easier said than done, I think, in this particular case. Unbelievable. Unbe How can you sit there and appoint Adam Schiff and Liz Cheney? Like, people can go, oh, well, that makes sense. Seriously? By the way, it, 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 although I don't know why I would feel to be the least bit compelled when it comes to um, Nancy Pelosi, I will say this. Kevin McCarthy basically told all of his freshman senators, or all of his uh, freshman representatives, I should say, that if they did go on this committee, they should expect that all their other committee assignments would be removed. So Kevin McCarthy wanted none of it. He wanted no Republicans actually on it. And, of course, Liz Cheney, he said he was a little surprised that Liz Cheney agreed to do it. But let's remember, Liz Cheney was ousted from her leadership position back in May because she couldn't stop criticizing Trump. And she refused to say that January 6th was anything other than a violent mob of Trump supporters. And she stuck with it. She stuck with it, and she refused to back down. Like I said, the Cheneys are not fans of Donald J. Trump. It's personal. And everybody on that committee, for everybody on the committee that I'm aware of, at least the leadership of that committee, it's personal. And they're going to go after him. All right, quick little break. 
Uh, we've got uh, Professor Rob Nadelson coming up. He's a constitutional law expert. Supreme Court wrapping it up for this for this session. Big ruling today, by the way, that impacts Texas. We'll we'll get to that with uh, the professor coming up here in just a couple of minutes here on AM 950 KPRC. It is uh, 3.32 here on AM 950 KBRC. A lot of the interesting decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court. We thought we'd kind of run through a few of them and uh, kind of wrap up what's been going on in the Supreme Court. Big decision today, by the way. Uh, joining us to talk about all this, uh, Robert G. Nadelson, former constitutional law professor, constitutional historian, senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence. I always like that word. Almost sounds like a dessert. At the Independence Institute of Denver. And uh, by the way, this learned gentleman has had his research cited by Supreme Court justices themselves. You're especially well-known, sir, for your study of the Constitution's original meaning. And that is a big topic, is it not, that comes up all the time? Well, what did the Founding Fathers mean by that? It does come up. By the way, I like that word jurisprudence, too. And your listeners may be interested in knowing where it comes from. A jurisprudence in Roman law was a scholar or a practitioner who was prudent in the law, prudent on jurisprudential matters. So he would give opinions with judges who were often not trained lawyers uh, or uh, magistrates or others would come to juris consults or juris prudentes uh, to get opinions on the law. And hence, hence the word jurisprudence. It really is a great word. It answer your question about uh, original meaning. Yeah, it comes up, but it doesn't come up as much. I mean, one of the points I'm making in an article for the Epic Times that I'm now writing is that the basic method that this court follows is pretty much the same method that very liberal courts followed uh, in much of the 19th century. And so even when they reach right decisions, it's not really based necessarily on what the Constitution means. It's sort of based on an intellectual spider web that's been built up through the years in isolation from the Constitution. It feels also feels like this court, sir. It feels like this court when they when they have a case in front of them that they're really uncomfortable with, they seem to want to find that that, that the, the complainants have no standing. They've gone to that quite a bit this year, haven't they? They have, and sometimes they've been right. I mean, I think I when we discussed this last time, I think I might have mentioned that I thought that the court was correct to dismiss Texas's court uh, court case against Georgia and others over the election because it was brought too late for the court to give any meaningful relief. But the decision to deny Texas um, its right to challenge Obamacare was, I think, on every level, absolutely inexcusable. It was inexcusable because the court has gone out of its way to grant standing to liberal states to pursue liberal causes. It was inexcusable because Texas and the other 17 states were spending billions of dollars a year to comply with a statute that, in addition, this is the third point, that by the court's own standard was now unconstitutional. But a part of what I meant, mean when I say that the court tends to rely more on uh, existing precedent or practices that came out of progressive courts of the past than rely on the Constitution is this. I mean, they, they don't seem to want to hedge in 
uh, federal power in any way. And that showed up in several cases this term where I thought the feds were out of line, uh, but the court nevertheless gave them a pass. Hmm. What did you make of today's 6-3 decision uh, regarding uh, election law? Well, you know, um, I was glad to see the result. I mean, because I think that election integrity is so important. I also think that the Arizona provisions that were being challenged were, I mean, you won't wonder why they were they were challenged. One was that um, uh, you couldn't engage in vote harvesting, whereby people collect other people's ballots, which is an obvious invitation for intimidation and pressure. Um, and in fact, I don't like open. I don't like mail-in ballots generally. Um, partly on on uh, sexual equality grounds, they give too many opportunities to abusive husbands to dictate the votes of their wives. Um, and in the past, that was recognized. Then, the uh, uh, in addition to the vote harvesting, the court said, if you want to go to vote in person, you've got to vote, or the, the statute said, you've got to vote in your own district. And the court was not interpreting the Constitution, it was a voting, interpreting some very complicated provisions of the Voting Rights Act, and it said they were okay. I, I look at cases like that, I'll be honest with you, and I say, you know, the Voting Rights Act was great in 1965. Why do we still have a Voting Rights Act? You know, I mean, we're not exactly uh, 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 sanctioning the Ku Klux Klan to go around to intimidate black voters anymore. Uh, in fact, in the, one of the points the court itself made a few years ago is that in southern states, uh, uh, black vote participation is now higher than many north, northern states. And in this particular case, the court noted that the differential in black versus white voting was like one half of one percent. Well, if you've been following the news, and I'm pretty sure you have, you know that uh, the racist label gets gets hung on a lot of things. It comes in very handy, politically speaking. Oh, yeah, because it's a conversation stopper. You know, I can say the sky is really beautiful today, and the response says, you're a racist, and that's the end of the conversation. I mean, it it's just, uh, it's a kind of, it's what we call an ad hominem argument. It's, you know, just an attack on the person. Um, what I think most of us have to do is stop taking this attack so seriously. I mean, a lot of us are feeling guilty about what some of our ancestors did. By the way, not my ancestors. My ancestors were in Lithuania, where most of them got eventually massacred by the Nazis, and my mother's ancestors were from Canada, so they were not responsible for this. But some of our ancestors were slaveholders and very cruel and so forth. But it's only, you know, it's God's prerogative to visit the sins of the fathers upon the sons. It's not our prerogative to start blaming ourselves or to blame other people based upon what people did, you know, hundreds of years ago. I think we once we get over that guilt thing, we're going to be impervious to this racist charge, and the charge will lose its force. Well, let's hope we get to that point soon. Uh, we're talking to Professor Rob Nadelson here on AM 950 KPRC. What I ask you, too, you know, this is this is getting into the sports world a little bit, but it was a Supreme Court decision that opened it up for NCAA athletes to get paid. University of Alabama making an announcement today that they're going to start playing, uh, paying their players this season $25,000 a season for participating in press conferences. That's That's a pretty nice little payday for a college kid. 
Yeah, that is. And, um, you know, I didn't get into that too, that case too deeply, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. The case was not decided on constitutional grounds, which is my strength. It was decided on antitrust grounds. And uh, my recollection is it was uh, the, the court was pretty overwhelming on it, but it might have been unanimous. I don't recall. But um, uh, Justice Breyer, whatever you think of him on other grounds, is an antitrust expert. And to analyze that case really requires antitrust expertise. I know that college sports is really important to people in Texas. It's important to people nationwide. But um, it's not intuitively obvious to me why the NCAA should be exempt from uh, antitrust rules that apply to everybody else. Um, but you might want to get somebody who's really an expert on antitrust law to discuss that case, because obviously you know, it has I, very important implications. I think for most Americans, it's not even about the, the legal aspects of it, right? I think it's more about, it, 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 there's, there's, the, there's the old schoolers like me who look back and, and, and having played a little college ball, look back at it and say, well, I did get paid. I got a, I got a free college education. That, 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 that was worth a lot yep. to my family, certainly. Um, and other than that, um, many of the things they did were just, just try to maintain some form of amateur status. And the few that were good enough to go on and play professional football had more than enough time to make millions of dollars. Um, it just, it just, I think it's, it's the end of an era as it relates to college sports. And I think they have actually opened up a, a complete can of worms with this. Not to mention all the, all the athletes in the past. Reggie Bush, for example, had to give up his Heisman Trophy. Uh, the University of Michigan had to vacate a, 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 a national championship uh, because of uh, money coming from boosters. Well, what's the difference between money coming from boosters and money coming from advertisers? Anyway, I didn't mean to yeah. get off on a rant on that. Yeah, I apologize. Uh, I, I, I understand that. I understand that. But as you said, that they're largely non-legal points, and the Supreme Court can, ever, can only consider the legal points. By the way, yeah. I don't necessarily consider it the end of an era. And the reason was this was certainly – it was simply an interpretation of antitrust law. Congress can create a carve-out any time, and I'll bet you it will. I'll bet you it will respond uh, to preserve the, uh, the situation as it was. We will see. Hey, um, what are some of the other cases that you found particularly interesting? Oh, gee. Well, I think the silliest case of the term was the one involving the high school cheerleader. Did you do you know about that? Oh, one? yeah. The, the, um, the cheerleader who swore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's right. This this is Mahoney Area School District versus B.L. Uh, we're not supposed to know her last name, but we do know that her parents name is Levy. So I think we're, <laughs> I'm not sure the initials serve the purpose. But um, this young woman, I won't say young lady did not make the varsity cheerleading team. She was only 14. I mean, you know, traditionally 14-year-olds, at least where I went to high school, went on the, on the junior varsity. So she, But she tried out for the varsity, and she didn't get it. I think she tried out for softball. She didn't get the varsity there either. So using Snapchat, she sent two messages to 250 of her closest friends <laughs> say, you know, saying, uh, F Dropping a few F bombs, F yeah. Fs, right, yeah. and uh, and also sends another one with extended middle finger. Now, I, 
I'm sorry, I'm old school. I don't see where a 14-year-old has <laughs> has a constitutional right to express that kind of a speech. But the U.S. Supreme Court considered it very earnestly. By an eight-to-one decision, they decided, well, yeah, she did have free speech. And even though that the school, the only thing the school did was suspend her for the cheerleading squad, after all, you know, somebody who throws F-bombs at the cheerleading squad and at the school isn't exactly qualified to serve as a cheerleader. But all they did was suspend from the, the squad for a year, that was considered to be a violation of the First Amendment. Uh, again, I'm old school, but I really consider that over the top. Yeah, um, the I, only reason I can expect, the only reason I can explain the case is that the parents sided with their kid as against the school, and uh, I would have uh, said to the kid, <laughs> I'm going I'm to send flowers to the school administrator because they did the right thing. Yeah, but, I would have suspended uh, her myself attitude. as a parent. Yeah. Professor, yeah. always good to talk to you, um, sir. I, go ahead. Great to talk I, to you, too. Yeah. I always, you know what? I always feel like my IQ's gone up at least a couple of points after I talk to you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. <laughs> that is Robert G. Nadelson, former constitutional law professor historian and senior fellow in constitutional jurisprudence at the Independence Institute in Denver. Joining us here on AM 950 KPRC. Quick break, back with more in a moment. Jimmy Barrett Show, AM 950 KPRC. Yeah, sorry, I got into a little uh, college athletics rant there. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a college football fan. I played the sport. So, um, you know, I, I understand both sides of the argument. And I'm, I have to admit, I'm looking at this from the standpoint of a fan more than I am in the standpoint of an athlete. If you're an athlete and you have a chance to make money, then sure, if you think, especially when you think the university is profiting off of you, selling tickets because of you, then you're wondering, well, I know the athletic department's making a lot of money. How come I don't get any of that money? Well, it's because you're an amateur. There's a time to be a professional. Now, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this. Here's, here's what I think about, and there's precious little parity left in college football as it is. There will be no parity after this goes into effect. Alabama, a couple of other schools today, I forget who else, you know, basically said they were going to start paying their athletes for things like press conferences. And by the way, this is not money that's going into a trust for after they graduate. This is not money that's, you know, going into some account somewhere. This is, they will be paid directly. They'll get, they'll get paid. Alabama is going to pay its players $25,000 a season to participate in press conferences. Twenty-five grand. I have no idea how they came up with that figure. But they did. $25,000. So if you're the University of Alabama or Clemson or Ohio State or some other school that's usually a top five school, you're going to all end up doing the same thing. And you're going to force other schools, to, for, for the sake of parity, to have to do the same thing if they can now that Alabama has made that move, every team in the SEC is going to make the same move because they all have to recruit athletes. If it was just Alabama doing it, or if it's just Ohio State doing it, and you got a kid 
who's trying to make a decision between Texas or Texas A&M, and A&M is doing it or is not doing it, and Texas is, which one do you think they're going to go to? The top athletes. They're going to go where they can make the most money. Well, now you're not, now you're not, now you really aren't going for an education, right? You're going to the school that's going to pay you the most. Going to the school that will pay you the most. What is the difference now between college football and the National Football League other than the amount of zeros at the end of the check? Nothing. Nothing. And as a fan, I'm going to miss that. I, I, I like the idea, even though I deep in my heart know better, that these athletes are going to a school because they really want to go to that school, that they want to go to school at that school. They want to be a part of the college culture. And I've been deluding myself all these years, knowing deep down inside, yeah, a lot they're going they're going to the best school that they think can get them onto the NFL. But there's a lot of schools that can move you onto the NFL if you're a quality player. But there are also a lot of schools that can't pay as much as other schools. And where's the money going to come from, by the way? Have they worked that out yet? Is that like an advertising deal? I guess so. Or are we going to allow colleges to just pay these kids directly? There's a lot of there's a there's a there's a big old can of worms that got opened up here. There's a lot of stuff to get worked out. Okay, let me do the Jen Saki thing. I I want to give a winner of the day award to Peter Ducey. Uh Peter Ducey has become um, the Jim Acosta of the right. I'm sure I'm I'm pretty sure that he is driving Jen Saki crazy and Democrats crazy because he is the only reporter who actually has the cojones to ask a lot of uncomfortable questions and and not let them go. Now, I will be the first to tell you that that's what Jim Acosta did, and he made a big name doing it. And maybe Peter Ducey's just doing the same thing, except he's doing it from a more conservative perspective for his network. Or maybe it's just payback for Jim Acosta giving Trump such a hard time. Whatever the reason, I love this exchange, even though I must say Jen Psaki is a lot better, a lot more adept at ducking questions than any of the press secretaries except for maybe Kaylee McEnany for the Trump administration. Here's the exchange with Jen Psaki and Peter Ducey. There are lots of examples of Democrats explicitly saying they want to defund the police. We've got Congresswoman Cory Bush, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar. Are there any examples of Republican members of Congress saying they want to defund the police? I think most people would argue that actions are more important than words, wouldn't you say? Uh, well, to that point, uh, to your point there, at the time of the vote on the American Rescue Plan, you had the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, and he said he just didn't like it because he thought it was a classic example of big government democratic overreach in the name of COVID relief. And then Kevin McCarthy said he thought Democrats were using coronavirus as an excuse to justify funding pet projects. Well, where is the, here the we're going to vote against here, this because they want to defund the police? Again, I think actions speak louder than words, Peter. So we can let other people evaluate what that means. It doesn't require them to speak to it or to shout it out. Their actions speak for themselves. doesn't matter what you say. It only matters what you do. And they haven't defunded the police. No, but they want to, <laughs> and they would if they could. So, so for politicians, 
Yeah. But like I said, she's pretty, you know, I, I will, like I said, I, I, I'm always willing to give the devil his due. And she is very good at what she does. She manages to sidestep the really tough questions. And she manages to defend policies that are, in many cases, indefensible. And she manages, like I said, to avoid answering questions when she knows she doesn't have a good answer. And when she doesn't have a good answer, she makes something up that gets her out of the middle of it that that's a lot better than, I don't know. Anyway, give her credit, I guess. All right, we've got Fox News coming up before. Hour number two is right around the corner. Chuck DeVore will join us. Also, to more talk more specifically on that election integrity ruling by the Supreme Court today and how that impacts Texas, if we can get that law passed in the special session. Back with more in a moment here on AM 950 KPRC. What we need is more common sense. More common sense. We've got to use plain old common sense. Breaking down the world's nonsense. About how American common sense will see us through. With the common sense of Houston. I'm just pro-common sense. For Houston, from Houston. Where are you talking about common sense? This is the Jimmy Barrett Show. Brought to you by ViewIn.com. Now, here's Jimmy Barrett. All right, well, there's some, I guess, some justice done today. Should never happen to the guy to begin with. I, do, I don't know if you heard uh, Michael Berry's program over on her sister station, KTRH, but he had on Dr. Hassan Gokal. That is the doctor that was being charged as a member of the Harris County Health Department with stealing vaccines. And he told the whole story of what happened. He didn't steal a damn thing. He never did. He went through the whole process of how many vials they had and how they had more vaccine that day than, than they had people to get the vaccine that day and how he thought he was doing the right thing and, by the way, doing the smart thing by making sure that none of that vaccine got wasted by finding people who could qualify based on the rules and how, as it turns out, there are too many names that were Indian or Pakistani. That was the problem. <laughs> it, wasn't it wasn't a diverse list of individuals. It wasn't equitable. That's what he was told. It wasn't equitable to give a family member his, I think it was his wife, right? The vaccine, one of the extra vaccines, so they didn't go to waste. Here's, and, and Michael pointed out something too. I mean, you, you know, Michael Berry was an attorney one time, right? Um, obviously, you know that. The grand jury, this whole, this whole thing, as you may recall, this whole whole thing became a real hot potato for the prosecutor's office in Harris County. Because they're being told they want him charged. And it became very clear what the public reaction for the most part was to this. So they decide to send it to a grand jury. And the grand jury will do one of two things. Usually they'll give the prosecutor exactly what they want as an outcome. And most of the time, a prosecutor won't bring it to a grand jury 
unless they want it prosecuted. Now, one of two things happened. Either the prosecutor's office said, you know, we'd appreciate it if you, uh, you know, made sure that we didn't have to try this case because this is a loser. Or the grand jury looked at the facts of the case, which is more likely the case, and said, this is stupid. This is really, really stupid. Dr. Uh, Gokal didn't get any relief from all of this. This has been going on since this last December. It's been over seven months. And he's had to live his life. He lost his job. He was fired. He was you know, given a charge of misdemeanor theft. You know, you're... You, you're, you're a person of honor, at least I think, he, from what I can tell, he seems to be and, and feels he's a person of honor. I mean, just to carry that weight around for seven months, waiting for some form of justice. Just ridiculous. Now, I guess he will be suing the county for wrongful termination, and I think it's a no-brainer to me that he's going to win. So at the end, probably Harris County, if they're smart, will settle with him out of court. And he'll end up getting a nice big payday. I don't know that that's what he's looking for. I think he's looking for um, restoration to his honor and his name. And I think he, 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 I don't know that he would want to work for them again. Probably not. I sure wouldn't want to. But Harris County, I think, is going to be liable for quite a bit of your taxpayer dollars. I live in Harris County. I'm a taxpayer in Harris County. That's my money that's going to go to him. It goes to far worse things here in Harris County, but it should never have to begin with. Any common sense? The worst thing that should have happened was for them to say, you know, we can't have you do that, or if that's what they want, is for him not to not to give vaccine to people who are unscheduled. Next time if that if you have if that happens again, just you know, you're under orders to throw it away. And then if he then if he does something he's ordered not to do, then you have some justification, perhaps, for termination. But that's not what happened. Unbelievable. Okay. Where was I going to go? That's right. Uh, let me find that little list of things I'm looking for. Um, here is something that also has me a little little incensed. It, 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 it's got more to do with civility than anything else. We live in a very uncivil world right now. It, it, we seem to be wanting to... If you've ever have you ever watched a, a, a clip of an argument going on in the uh, in the House of Commons in Great Britain, you know they're all standing around this table, pounding on the table, <laughs> making all this noise. I, I guess that's the way they do things over there. That's not the way we used to do things over here. Here is a Republican Ohio representative in the state house. Her name is Jenna Powell. She's trying to make a plea on behalf of female athletes over this whole allowing men to compete as women, women to compete as men, transgender thing. And listen to the reaction it comes from the Democrats. The Save Women Sports Act is a fairness issue for women to be able to achieve their dreams and athletics in our state. And it's crucial to preserving women's rights and the integrity of women's and girls sports. Across our country, female athletes are currently losing scholarships opportunities, medals, education, and training opportunities. This amendment will require schools that are part of the OHSAA to designate separate teams for participants of the biological sex. No school inter 
no school interscholastic conference or organization that regulates interscholastics shall permit biological males to participate on athletic team or an athletic competition designated only for biological female participants. They're trying to shout her down. They won't even allow her to say what it is that she, she has a right to, she's, a, she's representing the people of her district. She has, who elected her, she has a right to stand up. She has a right to oppose this measure. She has a right to stand up for male and female athletes. But they don't want to hear it. So instead they they're banging on the tables and booing, trying to make as much noise as they can to drown her out. That's what it's like in a socialist society, you know. There there is no other side. You know, there's 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 the side of the government, the socialist government, and nothing else matters. And these Democrats are all lurching that way. Even even at the, in state houses now. You wouldn't believe some of the misses I get from the Texas Democrat Party. It's scary. All right, quick little break. Chuck DeVore is going to come up in just a moment. Uh, there was good news that we were mentioning earlier last hour. The 6-3 Supreme Court vote on election integrity. That's no doubt going to have an impact on Texas, provided, of course, that that thing gets passed in the special session. Jimmy Baird Show here on AM 950 KPRC. 6-3 vote today, U.S. Supreme Court on election integrity. The good guys won this one. Um, but there'll be more battles, I'm sure. We're going to talk about this and a whole lot more with Chuck DeVore, Texas Public Policy Foundation. First things first, though, did you go down to the uh, the town hall yesterday, Chuck? Were you down I, there with Kevin? Yes, yes, I, I was down at the town hall with uh, two of my colleagues from our Border Protection Project. Uh, and by the way, they, they saw more evidence at the at the airport today as they were departing. They seen constant, you know, these piles of, of of luggage with tags on them uh, of a certain color that indicates they're for unaccompanied youth as they're being sent to our interior. So uh, I- interesting uh, sideshow from uh, uh, what they saw on their way back. That was a pretty amazing crowd, though, at the at the airport. It, it was. It was very energetic, and, and uh, I was, of course, most interested in, in listening for any sort of policy announcements and uh, Governor Abbott gave me a bit of the, the missing puzzle that I was kind of wondering what he was uh, uh, going to do about the, the current surge across our border, in that when he declared a disaster along the border, uh, it allows the state to upgrade uh, certain crimes that are often more associated with, for example, the aftermath of the hurricane, where you're concerned about looting or uh, other destruction of property while the law enforcement is busy you know, recovering and rescuing lives. And uh, with that disaster declaration, then uh, people that are trespassing or, for example, causing damage to fencing on a ranch or uh, doing other property damage, uh, instead of just issuing something that's equivalent to a citation, uh, it allows them to to, uh, upgrade the arrest and the charges to something more serious. And then the next part of the puzzle is, well, where do you put them? Because in many of these border uh, counties, the jails are full. And so I'm presuming that's the other part of the the, the, the puzzle that the, the governor didn't mention uh, during that segment on Hannity last night. 
uh, which is his provisions for making sure that there's enough space um, to put these individuals. So if you're going to give them consequences for breaking our immigration law and coming across the border. Well, I know that Galveston County Judge Mark Henry and Montgomery County uh, Judge Mark Keogh, um would both be the kind of people that if they have available jail space would probably volunteer some of the jail space. So I'm guessing that there are going to be some county judges in conservative districts that are probably going to work with the governor to try to make some room. Right, and and then, of course, you can always create a temporary facility. I mean, that's certainly nothing that uh, would prevent you from doing that, uh, as we saw in Arizona for many years under uh, former Sheriff Joe Arpaio. So uh, we'll see. I'm sure there's plenty of things that they've thought about, and uh, that was the the most interesting part for me as I was training to listen to every word, trying to trying to understand, uh, you know, if there was any news being broken or uh, any, uh, you know, new details to the plans that Governor Abbott has laid out. Since the last time you and I talked, of course, the governor's announced when the special session is going to be, uh, and it's coming up just a little bit later this month. Um, so do we have a real good idea of all the items that are going to be covered during the special session? Clearly, one of the things is was, was covered today by the United States Supreme Court, and that's an election integrity bill that we need to get past here that has already been shown thanks to some of our not-too-distant states that to pass Supreme Court muster. Right, that's certainly one. Uh, I would expect uh, another uh, chance at bail reform, which is also very important, and uh, Article 10, which of course is the funding for the legislature that the governor vetoed, uh, perhaps in an effort to encourage uh, the minority not to break quorum, since if they want to have their staff paid or get paid their own modest, uh, you know, $7,200 a year stipend, uh, that ends with the end of the fiscal year, uh, at the end of uh, August, I believe. So I, I think at least those three things are going to be on the call. Now, the, the Supreme Court's decision today was really landmark. I mean, it was a, a huge case uh, where... Uh, the Democratic uh, National Committee uh, sued Arizona uh, under the Voting Rights Act that two aspects of a law that they passed in 2016 uh, that cracked down on ballot trafficking uh, as well as out-of-precinct voting, uh, which is uh, unfortunately a way that you know an individual can cast more than one ballot, that both of those uh, aspects of the Arizona law were upheld. And what's most important for Texas is uh, this connection with the ballot trafficking uh, rules, because Texas enhanced its own uh, guard against ballot trafficking fraud in the 2017 special session. In fact, I testified in favor of the bill during that special session that uh, tightened up Texas's law and, fr- and frankly parallels a lot of what you saw coming out of Arizona. And so that that was a six to three decision uh, out of the Supreme Court that the Arizona law is perfectly constitutional. Well, and that's good news for us because I'm guessing our law is pretty similar if it if it gets passed. How how does the law two laws compare? What 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 is in Arizona they, versus they the one we're considering closely. here? Yeah, yeah, they they compare very very closely. What what both states did at the time was to restrict those individuals who can handle that mail-in ballot, uh, restricting it to people who are close relatives or who have power of attorney rather than just some person off the street. Uh, and that protects the voter. It protects the vote. It protects the privacy of the voter. It protects the voter from being intimidated or bribed by individuals for their vote. 
Now, ironically, California used to have the same law, used to have the same protections, fairly strong protections. And in the same time period, 2016 and 17, California passed two laws to basically adopt what Texas used to have before 2017. So the the two most populous states did a a complete flip-flop on uh, rules and guards against uh, ballot trafficking. And, of course, what you saw in California in the 2018 election was a complete wipeout for Republicans as they didn't adjust quickly enough to the new reality that you could send people door to door and essentially, uh, you know, bother, intimidate, uh, uh, you know, cold call and just continue to come back and come back until you got that vote in your hands. And in many cases, filled out the vote for the voter, uh, filled out that, that ballot for the voter. And, and so uh, you saw the, 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 uh, political ramifications of that in the 2018 midterm in California. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. One last question, political before, question for uh, you, before, before, before I let you go here. Um, I thought it was very interesting, and I'm, and I'm wondering what you think of the fact that President Trump has given an endorsement to Greg Abbott, but he's not given one to Attorney General Ken Paxton. What do you make of that? Well, what I make of that for right now is that uh, I understand that uh, our land commissioner, uh, George P. Bush, has developed a, a pretty good relationship with former President Trump. And it may very well be that the president's just uh, uh, wanting to let this thing play out a little bit further uh, because, the, you know, he he is all about these strong relationships that he's built over the years. And so I'm guessing that uh, if you may recall, uh, as I recall, uh, George P. Bush paid a visit to uh, President Trump out in Florida a few weeks ago. Okay. And, and of course, Ken Paxton has not one but two potential rivals. That's going to be a very interesting thing to watch that whole thing unfold. Anyway, we got plenty of time sure. to worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Hey, good to Texas talk to you as always. Thanks. It's always fun. Oh, yes, it is. Thank you, Chuck DeVore. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Texas Public Policy Foundation's Chuck DeVore. All right, quick little break. Back with more in a moment. Jimmy Baird Show here on AM 950 KPRC. For Houston, from Houston, this is the Jimmy Barrett Show on KPRC 950. It is uh, 433 now here on AM 950 KPRC. All right, just, just in case you missed it, thought I'd share a couple of highlights uh, from the Trump Town Hall uh, that was taped and then replayed on Fox last night uh, in the Sean Hannity time slot. Hannity was there, and he hosted it. Who else did I see that was there? There was somebody else there that surprised me a little bit. Anyway, um, members of the Texas Public Policy Foundation were there. Governor Greg Abbott was there. Big crowd. You know, I'm, I'm never, I've never been good at, at crowd counting. How about you? I've, I would say there's several hundred people, maybe 500 people somewhere in that general neighborhood crammed into that hangar. It was a, it was a, it looked like a good size. It's certainly a lot bigger crowd than Joe Biden could still, as president of the United States, pull off. So anyway, they're talking. To obviously, spent a lot. He's there to, you know, to talk about the border, and he, and he did. Here, here's here's part of what uh, former President Trump had to say about the Texas border. Well, there has never been a better time six months ago, and there's never been a worse time. We had the tightest security. You could come into our country legally. But you know what else we were stopping? Massive amounts of drugs, 
human traffickers, bad, bad people, criminals. They're emptying their jails into our country. You know, other countries are emptying their jails into our country. We never had it better, and now we've never had it worse. In the history of our country, I just saw, we're with the governor, the lieutenant governor, we're with Ken, we're with a whole group, I think the largest contingent of Congress, Congress people ever at the border. Well, that's what it, Brian Babbitt was there. We had him on our morning show on KTRH. Um, Ted Cruz was, I mean, the, 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 the list goes on and on and on. And by the way, let me just throw this in here really quickly before we continue with the president on the border. Um, did you, you know, I mentioned last hour the January 6th commission. You know, that vote t- took place. That vote took place and the committee was formed when all of those conservative congressmen and women were here in Texas at the border. Pretty sneaky, huh? Yeah. It's what you expect, though, right? It's what you expect from Pelosi and her gang. All right, here's more of the president speaking about the Texas border. It's incalculable how bad this is, where you have not hundreds of thousands, but millions of people storming into our country. Some of them, as we discussed, are from prisons, and they're bad, and they're murderers, and all of the things that I said before. It is, there's no way to judge that kind of damage. And you know getting them out is, a, is an ordeal, and all sorts of things will happen. It's going to be very hard. But I will say this. It has to be stopped now. This can't go till 2022. They all say, oh, we're going to win Congress. This can't go. They have to do something immediately. People are storming up. You look at some of these caravans where they have 15 and 20 and 25,000 people, and you don't know who's in those caravans. And dotted in those caravans are some of the worst people on Earth. So it's a tremendous cost, and it's also monetarily a tremendous cost. You're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars. Which is why we're willing to spend, evidently, $5 billion of our own to try to get enough of that wall built to have some impact. Because the federal government is shirking its responsibility. So Texas will act more like an independent nation, which is, I think, in a lot of ways very good. Okay, here's a few more thoughts, a few more opinions. One, For one thing, Governor Greg Abbott, he was there as well. He had a lot of things to say, and he expounded a bit on the dangerous criminals. And to show you how dangerous this is, what I'm about to tell you came from a Border Patrol apprehension yesterday where they arrested seven criminals coming across the border, two of whom have been convicted for sex crimes, one for a negligent homicide. And so these are very dangerous people. We need to be arresting these people and stopping them at the border, which is why Texas wants to build our own border wall. That got a nice applause. And one more for you here, because <laughs> I, like, I like hearing from him whenever possible. He was, I don't think, no, he wasn't at the border. Uh, he was on Fox. He, I think he said this actually the day before. Or he might have said it this morning. No, I think no, I think it was yesterday, before um, the Trump event. Uh, he said it yesterday morning. Senator John Kennedy explaining Biden and the border. President Biden's border policy, I think, is about as popular as a sinkhole, <laughs> okay. and uh, that's because the American people aren't stupid. They. Uh, they may not read Aristotle every day because they don't have time, but they understand that one or two things are going on. Number one, 
uh, either President Biden misled the American people when he ran, and he truly does believe in open borders, or number two, the people that he has put in charge of border security um, are not qualified to run a hot dog stand. Um, uh, they shouldn't be allowed to think for themselves. It's too dangerous. Now, I don't know which of those scenarios is true, but either way, the result is the same. Every day, thousands of people come into the United States unfettered, and we don't have the slightest idea who they are. That's a fact. We don't know who they are. Worse than that, we don't seem to care who they are. At least some people don't care who they are. We're willing to roll the dice. Could be terrorists in there. Probably is. Drug lords, gang leaders. Yep. Murderers, thieves. I mean, there's some decent people in there, I'm sure. But we don't know. We don't know who they are. All we know is we need to get them off the border and into the rest of the country. All right, uh, 440 now here on AM 950 KPRC. Do you remember... Probably not. Uh, but I, I, I will say this because uh, it's, it's, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, and I'm not trying to suggest to you that, that um, you know, I, I'm one of those I told you so kind of guys. I try not to be that kind of guy. But the reason why I mention this is because, you know, I, I, I am by no means super intelligent. I am by no means a, a predictor of the future in a psychic sort of way. I am not gifted in any way, shape, or form. A blind man could see it coming. I haven't heard a lot of people say some of the things I've said on some subjects, not because they're not brighter than me, but it's just, you know, we don't all think of everything. Here's one of the things I've been saying for the last couple of years. And of course, it, when it when it, it when it doesn't happen, then people go, "Well, I don't remember you saying that." And that that's probably that's fine. I could I could do like Rush used to do and go back and maybe find the cut if I knew where to look of of me saying this. But do you recall me saying to you as it relates to guns and the Second Amendment that I didn't believe that the left was ever going to really show up and try to take your guns away. I don't think that's how they're going to operate. I think that they're going to treat guns the way they treat everything else that they don't like. They're going to try to ta tax the crap out of it. So you have one of two choices. You either turn money over to them, which they're fine with because they like spending your money, or... Because, or you get priced out of being able to, to have the gun or the ammunition or whatever it is they decide to do as far as the taxation route. Democrats love taxes. Anything they consider to be a nuisance, they love taxes. And here we go. First prime example. Share it with you coming up next. Jimmy Baird Show here on AM 950 KPRC. Okay, so I was saying, um, this how how the the left deals with things that they don't like. Well, here's no. I, I let me let me rephrase that. That's not exactly accurate. What the left does in order to raise taxes, to raise money, to gather as much of your money as they can get, 
because they they want to control what it gets spent on. The way they do it is to tax things that they consider to be a nuisance. It's why in cities you have things like soda taxes or fast food taxes. The, and, and the excuse for doing it is, of course, well, you know, this stuff's bad for you. we got to get you to, to stop drinking so much soda. It's bad for you. Now, they really don't want you to quit drinking soda. Because if you quit drinking soda, then they, they, they don't get the tax. So, you know, they put the tax on. And it, it's, it's just enough to make a bunch of money for them without pricing you out of buying soda. Well, the same philosophy is being employed with guns. And I've been saying for the last two years this is going to happen, and this is the most concrete example to date. And it's coming out of, okay, everybody with me now, what state is it coming out of? It's California. That's right, California. Gun owners in San Jose, California, will soon face a yearly tax and be required to carry additional insurance after the city council voted unanimously, unanimously, Tuesday evening to impose these new measures. It's a fee for gun ownership in the city of San Jose. If you own a gun, you pay the tax. Okay. The amount of the tax is yet to be determined. They haven't figured that out yet. But they say that anybody found to be in non-compliance with paying the tax will have their weapons confiscated. Well, what does this achieve? Number one, you will have to directly register your weapons with the city of San Jose if you live in the city of San Jose. So they know who has a gun. They know the address of everybody who has a gun. And they know how to tax you. They also know where to go to confiscate it. For any reason, which for now is just going to be non-compliance of paying the tax. So they got their own gun database. And they're going to try to make money doing it. Now, who wrote this story? This story comes from Fox Business. Okay. Better than most. Um, the, city, the city council's aim, according to this story, is to try to recoup the cost of responding to gun incidents such as shootings and deaths. According to the Pacific Council on Research and Evaluation, which studied the issue and sent a representative to testify before the panel, gun-related incidents cost the city roughly $63 million each year in the way of paying for police officers, medics, and other expenses. Okay, can we pick this apart for a second? The city council's aim is to try to recoup the cost of responding to gun incidents such as shootings and deaths. The Pacific Council on Research, I'm reading this again for a reason. The Pacific Council on Research and Evaluation, which studied the issue and set a representative to testify, said that gun-related incidents cost the city roughly $63 million every year. Okay. That's a cumulative total, right, of all gun incidents. How many of those incidents were a result of people with legally registered firearms? 
I would love to know the percentage of that. How many of those incidents, the shootings and what have you, were perpetrated by criminals with criminal records illegally in possession of a firearm? How many were committed by people who didn't have a license for that firearm, but they had a firearm anyway? What does a legal registered... How many of these incidents were legally registered individuals? I, I, I can tell already that the vast majority... I can't give you a percentage, but I'll be way, way up there majority of people had nothing to do with these gun-related incidents. How many police officers are being employed, if this is what it's supposed to pay for, how many police officers are being employed strictly because of gun incidents? How many medics are responding strictly to gun incidents? How, many, how much of the police officer's time is actually spent writing tickets and doing routine patrolling? How much of the medic's time is actually taking people with, I don't know, a heart attack to the hospital? What does any of that have to do with guns? Where do they come up with a figure of $63 million? The new measures come weeks after a disgruntled Santa Clara Valley Transportation Authority employee gunned down and killed nine colleagues at a San Jose rail yard. I get it. It's a mass shooter. No doubt with mental health issues. Why not spend the money on mental health? But here's the thing. I would like to believe, well, it's California. It would have to work its way probably out of California before a federal judge said, this is stupid. Or at least, I don't know, would it make it to a federal judge? Or would this strictly be a state issue? I would, I would hope responsible gun owners in San Jose, I'm, I'm assuming, are going to fight this tooth and nail. This is overreaching to the nth degree. I, I would like to think it's illegal what it is they're proposing to do, but I'm not surprised that this is what they're doing. This is how Democrats deal with everything. Because at the end of the day, there is a Second Amendment, and I do believe that it passes constitutional muster. You do have the right to keep and bear arms. But you might not have a right to avoid taxes. Just like they did with cigarettes and other things, they will find a way to tax it. They will make money from it. If we can't ban it, we will make money from it. That's what they do. There'll be more of these laws in liberal states. And there'll be more people leaving liberal states for states like Texas. That That's a given. There's no slowdown on this stuff. Absolutely none. But again, completely predictable. It was never a matter of whether or not they were going to tax it. There'll be plenty more taxes coming. They'll tax ammunition. Um, they will tax any kind of gun-related piece of equipment. You name it, they're going to tax it. They'll add a special tax on the purchase of a firearm that isn't there now. Etc., etc. They'll just find a way to make money from it. 
They don't really want it to go away. They just want to make more money from it. And then claim that it's to try to be a preventative measure or to pay for this or to pay for that. That's not what it's for. Do you even think the city of San Jose would use the money for that? I don't think they probably would. Okay. One more th- cut I want to share with you because I want to give a quick reaction to it. We, we, we broke it yesterday afternoon that Bill Cosby had just been released from a Pennsylvania prison uh, on a technicality. It had nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It's just that evidently there had been a deal that had been struck that he was not going to be prosecuted, and he was. So it was determined that, that he should have never gone to trial to begin with. Here is his legal team's full reaction. Here's what his defense attorneys said. Listen especially to the first one, the first attorney, the male. Listen to what he says about his client. Mr. Cosby has always used his celebrity, his name, his likeness, to uplift women. How could a man who was being watched by the FBI every day be raping and drugging women in the 60s or 70s, especially a black man? Today, innocence came to Mr. Cosby. Mr. Cosby, we, we knew all along he never should have been prosecuted for this. He had every right to rely on the prosecutor's word. And they pulled the rug out from underneath him because of politics, because of the court of public opinion. And that is not how our system should operate. You know, I'm not going to argue with the, with the female attorney, but you, did you hear the guy, the man? He pulled the race card. He, he, he proclaimed Bill Cosby's innocence. He's not out of prison because he's innocent. He's out of prison on a technicality. You can't proclaim innocence based on that judge's ruling. Like I said, you know, the, the, the occupation that, that makes me scratch my head the most is defense attorney because of some of the things you'd have to do. What? I, I guess I would have, I, I couldn't do that job. <laughs> Some people can, I can. Have a great evening. See you tomorrow morning, bright and early 5, back here at 3 on AM 950 KPRC.